0: Good morning, everybody. Um, I'll take off the mask. I'm really glad to to be here. I'm a little bit nervous. I I do talk to people for a living, uh, but they usually tend to be a lot younger than me, and I know I'm like in the below average age here, so that changes the dynamic a bit for me. I'm also drinking tea that I put more sugar in, and then Nyla told me afterwards that there was already sugar in. So if I'm speaking extra fast, that's why. So. Um, but I'm honored to preach here at Calvary, um, first time, uh, especially during the season of Advent. Um, I actually grew up not knowing what Advent was, uh, didn't even know it was a thing until my 20s. Uh, the church I grew up in, of course, celebrated Christmas, but didn't treat the weeks leading up to Christmas any differently than any other time. Um, since then, though, Advent has become my favorite four weeks of the church calendar. Our Advent Sermon Series this year is called The Prophets Foretold. Um, And I feel like it captures so much of why I love the Advent season. We have been looking at some passages in the Old Testament where the prophets of ancient Israel described and promised a future ruler and savior, uh, Messiah or Christ. These prophecies were made to the Israelite people hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And those years in between were long, hard years. The Israelites were conquered, they were exiled, they were oppressed all by foreign nations and nearly, I would say nearly hopeless is probably the appropriate word for that period. But during this time, as they waited and waited in dark times, the prophet's words kept their hopes alive, for they believed the Messiah was coming someday. And so this Advent season, every Advent season, um, as we study these prophecies, as we study the word, we prepare ourselves for Christmas where we celebrate Christ's first coming to earth and how that beautiful event fulfilled these long-awaited promises for the Messiah. But we are also preparing for Jesus' promised second coming. We are a lot like the ancient Israelites. We're waiting and waiting through the dark times. It's easy to forget and lose hope that Christ will return like he said he would. So like the Israelites, we eagerly study the same prophecies to rekindle our faith and hope. So far, this season, we've read two beautiful prophecies from the books of jeremiah and malachi and today we read a famous text from the book of micah i'm excited to get into it but uh before we get started let's let's pray together heavenly father we pray that you would speak to us through your word and make your glory and love known to us that you would shape us and breathe new life into our hearts amen I'm going to be conscious every time I flip the page, Pastor Dan. You t- called me out on the thickness of it. The text is really big, guys. I promise it's not that long. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's start with a little bit of context for today's passage. Micah was a prophet around the year 700 B.C. Um, and at this time, the land of Israel was divided into two different kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom. It was actually called Israel. Uh, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Micah himself is from a town in Judah, near the capital of Jerusalem. Most of Micah's prophecies are not very much fun. He spends a good part of the book calling out the people of both Israel and Judah for idolatry and disobedience to God. He has particularly harsh words for the ruling class of Jerusalem. Micah accuses the political and business leaders of economically exploiting the people and the religious leaders of peddling false prophecies, teachings, and feel-good messages. This isn't the main passage for today, but I do want to read just a few particularly excoriating verses to give you a taste of what Micah is dishing out for these guys. Uh, So Micah 3, verses 9 to 12, I'll just read these. He says, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord, and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Whew, that's some tough language right there. Micah's warning, because of these sins, that destruction is coming for the Israelites, and it does. The kingdoms of both Israel and Judah are soon invaded by the Syrian and Babylonian empires. Jerusalem is sacked, and the majority of the Israelite people are forcibly removed from their homeland. They're sent into exile to the far corners of the Middle East, and they don't hear from God for a long time. But between the accusations and the prophecies of destruction, Micah also offers a few messages of hope. God promises that eventually he will rescue his battered, scattered people and once again establish his kingdom. And Micah also reveals that God will fulfill these promises through a ruler that is to come, one far better than the corrupt leaders that are currently running the land and ruining the land. Which brings us to today's main text. Micah 5, verses 2 to 5. You guys can, uh, if you want to pull out your Bibles, not a bad idea, but obviously it'll be up on the screen too. So let's read together. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. The word of the Lord. So the first part of this passage, Micah 2, uh, which you can show up there, uh, we just read it. It's probably the most famous of Micah's prophecies about the promised ruler. Um, Christians today understand that Micah was speaking about Jesus of Nazareth who was born in the town of Bethlehem 700 years later. Even most non-Christians have heard enough Christmas carols to have an instant association between the word Bethlehem and the image of a sweet baby Jesus lying in a manger. But to the Israelite people before Jesus, Bethlehem was primarily associated with someone else, King David. Bethlehem was David's hometown, which is also where he's anointed as Israel's king about 300 years prior to Micah and David was Israel's most beloved king. He unified the 12 tribes of Israel into a great nation, and during David's and his son Solomon's reign, Israel had a strong national religion, economic prosperity, and great military strength. And as a result, the nation of Israel and its peculiar God drew respect from other peoples and nations, not to mention monetary tributes, which were kinda nice. Most importantly, during David's life, God makes a sacred covenant to him, promising that David's kingdom would last forever, with one of his descendants always sitting on the throne. So the mention of Bethlehem and origins from ancient times would draw to mind not only David himself, but this covenant. People of both Micah's time and Jesus' time reading this passage would likely envision a future monarch descended from David, someone who would come and restore Israel a state of greatness like the days of David. If we look again at the second half of the passage verses three through five um, that describes what the coming ruler will accomplish in his time. Uh, we can imagine those expecting a ruler like David how they might have interpreted it. So let's read those again. And the rest of his brothers returned to join the Israelites. Perhaps The king will bring back the scattered people of Israel and Judah from exile, reunify the 12 tribes back into one great nation. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Perhaps the people would read that and think, ah, he will unite the people with nationalized religion, lead us back into economic prosperity, establish a strong military and finally win back the respect of the foreign nations, like David and Solomon once did. And of course, verse five, he will be our peace. Peace in our time, right? No more threatening empires like Syria or Babylon, no more corrupt leaders who will exploit our own people, no more civil war, no more division. There will be safety and security, like the olden days, right? And I think we can relate to the Israelites. Because if we're honest, we want a David too. We are also living in uncertain and troubled times. We worry all the time about our own safety and security from violence, both abroad and in our own communities. Our own country is deeply divided politically, even breaking families apart, which Christmas certainly is a reminder of that sometimes, right? And of course, there's an ongoing pandemic right now, causing widespread financial hardship, mental health issues, and Seems like both the American experiment and the American dream seem to be dying a slow death as well. Our nation feels less and less like a shining example of democracy and prosperity, and our international standing has never looked more laughable. So where does that leave us? Like the Israelites, we desperately long for real leadership. Many of the people in charge who we elevated and we expected to do something about all this messed up situation, right? Have instead disappointed us, even taken advantage of us. Like the leaders of Micah's day took advantage of their people. So we look for the next leader or organization or cultural movement that will step up and fix this mess. Sometimes we think we've found the right one for a while and maybe we convince ourselves for a while that they might be the real deal, right? But only to be let down again. The rich and powerful who seem helpful and convince people that they're fighting for them turn out to be greedy and exploitative. uh, Celebrated civil servants and do-gooder organizations sometimes just seem to end up just as likely to cover up for the sake of power as the bad organizations and people. Even our most beloved religious leaders and movements seem to be falling from grace left and right. I've been listening uh, recently to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Some of you have uh, maybe heard of it. Pastor has mentioned it in a sermon before, um, and I do highly recommend it, but I will say it's a tough listen. It chronicles the story of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, which was arguably the fastest growing American church about a decade ago. I think they peaked at about uh, 15 campus and nearly 50,000 congregants at one point. But right at that peak of growth and impact, it crumbled almost overnight. The podcast spends a long time unpacking many of the different factors, but the central figure of the story is the charismatic senior pastor, Mark Driscoll, who, despite being a very gifted preacher and teacher, had a long pattern of unchecked domineering and abusive behavior. When his elder board finally tried to intervene, Mark resigned instead of accepting accountability and left Mars Hill to crumble within the month. There's too many stories like Mars Hill. Another one that hit me hard this year was the famed apologist, Robbie Zacharias, who I grew up listening to on the radio. Um, his sexual impropriety was discovered only after his death, um, and so he couldn't answer for it. But his organization and all the people who trusted in him and believed in him had to. <sighs> Perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised, though, that so many of our Christian leaders turn out to be deeply screwed up. King David himself was a deeply flawed and selfish man as well. He infamously committed both adultery and murder in the exact same week. So yay for the best king of all time, right? But it seems fair to then raise a question. Why do we keep getting taken in by these bad leaders? Why do we keep putting these kinds of people up on pedestals just to see them fall? When we see our leaders fall, sometimes we respond by saying things like, well, they used to be a good person, but power or fame changed them. Or maybe we say something like, "Ah, I guess I should have known better than to trust a person like that. Or perhaps, as a result of being let down over and over and over again, some of us just become more and more cynical, and we stop trusting anyone but ourselves. Perhaps that's the problem, we think actually trusting other people. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we need to look inward and ask the question, are we really so much better than these people? Would we be able to resist the same temptations that they do and that they have? Are we so humble? Do we not like being in control? Do we not hate admitting our mistakes and being held accountable? Do we actually care about other people more than ourselves? As our pastor loves to ask every week, how are we doing with that? How am I doing with that? I know that I'm proud. I love having power and control. I'm self-serving and self-justifying. And gosh darn it, I like winning, even if it means other people end up losing. At the end of the day, it's not just the leaders who are problematic. I am the problem, you are the problem. We are the problem. And why? Because we're sinful. We're sinful humans who want our own way. The flawed leaders that we love and we follow and we get really excited about, they're just symptoms of that disease. We are drawn to successful people who are most like ourselves because, I mean, I mean even, even the ones who are most like the worst parts of ourselves, right? Because their success justifies our shortcomings. We love these people because They tell us in their own way what we want to hear, which is that we're good enough as we are and that we're able to fix our own lives, maybe with their help, right? But like, we've got the right idea, right? We're on the right track, that we can save ourselves. But we're not good enough, are we? We can't fix the world. We can't save ourselves. And neither can any of these other people, these so-called leaders. So who can? A thousand years after David is anointed king in Bethlehem, mysterious men from the Far East arrive at the exact same place. They've traveled far, following a mysterious star, and looking for a newborn king. The scribes in Jerusalem have told them that the prophet Micah says the ruler will be born in Bethlehem. So here they are. And what do they find? No palace, just a dirty animal stall. No adoring masses just a gang of smelly shepherds. No respectable royal family, just a poor carpenter, a teenage peasant girl, and a baby who, though in the traceable lineage of King David, was probably suspected all his life of being an illegitimate child. Are the men from the east surprised? Probably a little bit. Would Micah have been surprised? I don't think so. You see, that verse about Bethlehem, in verse uh, Micah 5-2, right, has a bit that we often overlook and we kind of struggle to translate it. Actually, the NIV, which we have up here, says Bethlehem is small, but we other others that try to translate it have it as little or least significant or too little to be among the other clans of Judah. We hear, oh, little town of Bethlehem nostalgically, but the original phrase here is actually kind of insulting. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of amusing to note that the scribes who tell the Magi about Bethlehem, um, they actually misquote Micah when they tell him about the prophecy. They change it to say that Bethlehem is by no means the least among the clans of Judah, which leads some credence to my theory that the wise men were probably a little bit disappointed that there weren't any three-star hotels in the area. But why is Micah dissing on the famous birthplace of Jesus in, or sorry, of King David in the first place, right? And Jesus too. To that, I'd like to cite a really great article I read this week by Chad Bird, who wrote it for 1517. pastor sent it to me, and I loved it. Um, I'll do some paraphrasing, some quoting. Um, he notes that in the book of Judges, we actually find two of the most scandalous stories involving two individuals who hail from Bethlehem. No pop quiz or anything um, after here on the details. I'm just, I just want you to appreciate the degree of messed up these stories are, okay? So I'm just gonna go through really fast. The first story is about a Levite who abdicates his religious duties and instead becomes a personal pagan priest to whoever will pay him the most. First, to an idol-worshipping silver thief and then to a gang of roving bandits who rob his first employer. The kicker is that the guy's actually the grandson of Moses himself. The second story is even worse. It's about a woman who's sexually unfaithful, leaves her man, And the man eventually convinces her to come back to him, but on the night of her return, he ends up locking her outside to satiate a mob of perverts. And they abuse her all night. In the morning, the man opens the door, finds her lying on the porch, dead. And then he takes her corpse, and instead of burying it, he dismembers it into 12 pieces and ships it across Israel as a warning message. These are not the stories we tell in children's Sunday school classes, are they? Ugh. So, both this faithless Levite and this poor abused woman were from Bethlehem. The arrival of David probably helped a little bit with the tourism industry, but still talk about a place with bad reputation. Does Micah really think a ruler is going to come out of here? Apparently he does. He actually wants his readers, I think, t- to remember these messed up stories and messed up people. By savi- by having the saving ruler born in the same town as these people, He's showing us exactly what kind of people the ruler is coming to save. I'm going to quote Chad Bird directly here because he puts it so beautifully. He was born for the forgotten, who sleep cold and scabbed in the trash-strewn alleys of our cities. He was born for the refugees, who have seen the underbelly of a world that would make most of us vomit from horror. He was born for the repeat offender, the stripper and the prostitute, The preacher hooked on porn and the politician hooked on an ideology concocted in the mad mind of hell itself. He was born for them all. He was born for us all. So in order to reach the least of us, what does Christ do? He becomes the least of us. Jesus was part of the Trinity in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's an extraordinary position. But in obedience to God's plan, he humbles himself and was born a lowly, ordinary man in the back alleys of a backwater town into a family with no financial means or social repute. And he didn't stop there. At the close of his ministry, Jesus humbled himself even further, submitting to an undeserved death on a cross as the great sacrificial substitute for the sins of all mankind. I could go on and on about how beautiful and incredible God's plan of salvation and Christ's humility is. But I think it's far better that we read it in the words of scripture itself. So I'd like to read a prophecy from another prophet, the great prophet Isaiah. He's a contemporary of Micah's, actually. Uh, And the passage is a well-known and beloved passage at both Advent and Easter time. So you might be familiar with certain translations of it. Uh, But I'd like to read it from the the message translation because it hits a little bit differently. And so um, I'd also like to encourage you to read the passage out loud with me. Even if it's just a near breath, um, I think... The words will minister to your heart as you speak them as they do to mine. So let's read together from Isaiah 53. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant, and a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand one who one look at him and people turned away we looked down on him though he was scum thought he was scum but the fact is it was our pains he carried our disfigurements all the things wrong with us we thought he brought it on himself that God was punishing him for his own failures but it was our sins that did it to him that ripped and tore and crushed him our sins he took the punishment That made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was let off, and did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he'd give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it, life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I'll reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. Isaiah's words paint a beautiful, yet bewildering picture, don't they? Is there anything in the world that's more wild and wonderful than the gospel? That God himself would willingly choose to be humiliated, beaten, and nailed to a cross, all for the very people who rejected him that he came to live and die among us, the messed up, the stuck up, the used up, the fed up, and the screwed up humans that we are. And he took up our sin and suffering on that cross, thinking nothing of himself, but making a way for us to be called the righteous ones. Church, if the bad news is that we are the problem, this is the good news, the gospel, that Christ has saved us from ourselves. As we wrap up here, um, I wanna return to the latter half of our text from Micah again, verses three through five, where Micah describes what the coming ruler is going to accomplish. We read it from, or we read it from a worldly perspective before, the way both the ancient Israelites and us modern Americans might hope or expect of a coming ruler. But if instead we look at it through the lens of what Jesus Christ has accomplished through the cross, we see Micah's words very differently he says, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He's not saying just that Jesus would bring together the Jewish people, but that by his perfect sacrifice, he would bring people together from every nation and blood back to God. And when Micah says, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, he's not talking about military or political strength, but the strength to overcome sin and death. When he says they will live securely, he's not speaking about worldly security from threat of violence or internal conflict but secure in our standing and our relationship with the Lord of heaven. When he says his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, he's not saying he'll be great because of conquests or riches, but for his great love and salvation that becomes legendary. And he will be our peace, not a mere worldly peace between nations, but a peace between all men, peace within the man and peace with God in heaven. Church, let us not have our hope of salvation in any man or movement, but hope in Jesus Christ alone, who is worthy of the title Lord and Savior. If there is one fear I have for the church today, then I have a lot. It is that we would fail to recognize Christ when he returns. The people of Jesus' time had the prophecies, but they did not recognize him because he did not match their expectations of their hoped for ruler. His heart, God's heart, was not like our hearts. So they wanted no part in his kingdom. His salvation wasn't the kind of salvation that they were looking for. So let us be careful about allowing our hearts to be captivated by charismatic leaders or cultural movements, even Christian ones who claim to have the solutions to our problems. There is no earthly leader who can bring true peace. Remember that all human hearts are sinful and proud and self-seeking, our own most of all. We cannot save ourselves. Only Christ can save us. Only Christ can truly reconcile all kinds of people to God and to one another through the power of his blood. Only Christ can establish an eternal kingdom and an everlasting peace. May we be reminded of these truths this season and rest in the saving power and hope and love. Christ Jesus, the only true and worthy ruler who was and is and is to come. Lord Jesus, come back soon.